I'd like to read from, as uh, living water is what I want to talk about today, and I want to read from John 4 some verses that describe this story. Now, Jesus was going to leave Judea, and uh, he's going to go to Galilee. This by way of introduction. He did not have to pass through Samaria. Most Jews tried to avoid Samaria at all costs. The Samaritans were, uh, 700 years of hostility, the Samaritans were considered half-breeds because they were Jews that intermarried with the Assyrians when the Assyrians occupied their territories. And so there was just a lot of animosity between the two groups. And, and so Jesus, um, as a Jew, would be expected not to go through Samaria. And he makes a deliberate, a deliberate decision to go through Samaria. He had an appointment here. Uh, he knew was someone that uh, nobody else knew. And so we'll pick it up right there. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew? I am a Samaritan woman? You can ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Uh, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, uh, am he. This is God's word, and may there be praise in the church because of it. Living water today. We have some outstanding runners in our congregation, men and women. I was going to name a few, but I would inevitably forget some of them, so I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. 
I am not one of them. All right? But I do run. I have run a marathon in the past. It's a little race in Boston. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, I owe every step of that race to my friend Howard. Uh, he dragged me along. It was an awesome thing to do, and uh, it was just a bucket list kind of thing. I probably will never run another one, although my friend Myra, before she passed away, I told her I was going to. So maybe before I show up in heaven, it would be a good idea to have another one <laughs> crossed off, okay? Because uh, I think she'll ask me. But I want you to know, I, I wasn't running that race to, uh, I wasn't running that race for time. I was just running to finish. And like most races uh, that you run, they have water stops at least every mile. And I recall maybe the first couple of miles not thinking the water stops were all that big of a deal. But then, you know, as a race, you get into the race a few miles, that water stop is really precious. You really look forward to uh, a glass of water as you're passing through those stations. But then a problem developed. The famous Heartbreak Hill is at the end of mile 20. And at the top of Heartbreak Hill, I hit what is called the wall. I was shot. I still had six miles to go to the finish line. Howard dragged me every single step of the way. The thing that was interesting, though, is that this time, uh, things changed for me in my relationship to the water stations. At all the other water stations, up until this point, the water I had enjoyed, it had refreshed me, uh, but... From that point on, the water was no longer refreshing. I could have stood there and drank a gallon of water. But I hit the wall, man, and there wasn't any amount of, the, of uh, water in the whole world that was going to give me the strength I needed to, to really keep going uh, in that race. You see, we can drink the pleasures of sin, and we can drink the pleasures of the world, pursue them with all of our might and heart, but sooner or later, we're going to hit the wall. Sooner or later, we're going to hit the wall, and they won't do it for us anymore. Jesus said, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. In Philadelphia, there's a place on Sky, uh, it's called Skyle Kill River, called Boathouse Row. There's a stream that comes into the river at that point, and if you follow the stream over the hill into the city, you come to a spring. And over the spring, there is an inscription, which some people believe was put there by the city of Philadelphia years and years ago, and the inscription reads, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. You know, there are some incredible promises made to us in John 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus tells us today that everyone who can hear these words not only gets thirsty for water, but at the very core of their being, they have a thirst, we have a thirst that cannot be quenched by anything. We have a thirst that can't be quenched by 
anything, sex, material things, cars, houses, any experience on this earth, drugs, we have a, we have a thirst that can't be quenched by anything on this earth. but can only be quenched by Jesus. Now let's spend a few minutes this morning investigating this need that Jesus says that we have. First of all, Jesus talks about this need he desires to meet at the core of our being. He comes to us like this. He says, the reason you need to come to me is because you are thirsty. There's this God-creating craving inside of us. In other words, there's this gaping hole, this landfill, in our souls, that without God's help, we're trying to fill this landfill with things that only make the hole deeper and wider. We believe these things will bring us happiness if we can only achieve them, but all they do is make us more thirsty. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you've really been very thirsty someplace and uh, you've been working outside uh, or working out and you're really thirsty and you need a drink and um, somebody hauls out something they think will qualify to quench your thirst, and you drink it, and you realize it's just so sweet you can hardly stand it. It's like a, maybe a bottle of pancake syrup. You know, it's liquid, right? But it's not going to quench your thirst like some cold water will. And you find that no matter how much you drink, it's, it's never a lot, enough. You need some the real stuff, some, some really cold water. Sinclair Lewis, not C.S. Lewis, he writes in one of his novels about a man, a man who has it all. He's a businessman, tons of cash, houses all over the country, and he decides to leave his wife and run off with a married woman. In the novel, he ruins his family, he ruins his reputation. This woman who leaves everything, she has run off with him, and at one point she says to him, you know, on the surface we seem quite different, but deep down we are fundamentally the same. We are both desperately unhappy about something we don't even know what it is. You see, friends, if life is not done God's way, uh, if life is not, uh, if we don't drink from the fountain of God's spirit, there is a desire awakened in us. When we first fall in love, when we first start our career, when we first get our first taste of professional success, when, when you're able to build your dream house, get your dream car, whatever it might be, uh, when you grab them, you say, this is going to make me happy. This is going to quench my desire, but they never do. These desires are such that the very best of life, the best mate, the best job, the very best career can't seem to ultimately fulfill us. It is Jesus is right. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. So, what are the typical responses? Well, when a person sells out to the pursuit of this stuff, and they find out they're sitting on a pile of sand. Instead of just accepting it and considering what the real problem is, like alcoholics do, they have denial and they have deflection about what the real problem might be. And there's kind of like three things they want to blame. I'd like to look at those for just a minute. First of all, people, when they can't find happiness in things or, or uh, stuff or, or even their relationships, they, they, they blame things or people. You can say, you know, I've made it. I've got all this stuff. Why am I so unhappy? Man, there must be something wrong with this house. This house doesn't just cut it. 
I need a new one. I need a bigger one. You know what? I'm not happy anymore. I really think it's my husband's fault. He's, he's boring. If I find another man, I'll be happy. I'm not happy. It's my wife's fault. She's not into this or into that. I need a different lover. Then I'll be happy. You know what is interesting is how crazy it gets when people are like this. Just because they have a thirst that they'll never be able to quench, blowing up marriages, blowing up families, blowing up kids, spreading heartbreak because they're thirsty. Just because they're thirsty. That's what happens when we blame others for our own unhappiness. Second thing we do in our denial is we do blame ourselves in some ways, but we still don't know where to look for help. This is, this is where most of us are. Uh, maybe you haven't been successful. And instead of blaming things, uh, since you don't have things, um, you say, well, I'm the reason I'm unhappy because I haven't achieved. I haven't performed up to standards. I've made bad choices. And we get down on ourselves and we sulk and we get depressed and and discouraged because I didn't get this job or that job or I didn't graduate from this school or, or just whatever career path I wanted just didn't quite work out. And so, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm just a failure. And life becomes a sort of torture for us because we put our faith and our hope and security in something we didn't achieve. And it's just not the foundation we wanted to build on. And, and we're just devastated because we're drinking from the wrong fountain. And I guess the third form of denial is we can blame the universe, can't we? <clears throat> you know, we can just blame the randomness of it all. You can say, well, when I was little, when I was younger, I thought I could be a happy person. But now I've grown up, and I realize I didn't get the breaks, and the deck was stacked against me. And, um, boy, we've also given up a lot that makes us human then. We've given into cynicism and, and into bitterness. So instead of turning to God... These are the kinds of things we think when we have this mad pursuit, uh, trying to drink water that's not going to satisfy. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I'm going to paraphrase a couple of them. He says, for every desire you find in a creature, there exists a satisfaction. Ducklings want to swim. Guess what? There is such a thing as water. Birds are hungry. There is such a thing as worms. Babies are thirsty. There is such a thing as milk. Husbands and wives have sexual desire. There is such a thing as marriage and sex. However, if I'm honest with myself, within myself, I have a deep thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. It must mean, it must mean I am built for another world. It must mean I am built for another world. Let's consider briefly a woman who found the answer to her deepest longing. This story we read today takes place in this Samaritan town called Sakar, near a plot of ground Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus is tired from his journey. The Savior, divine and human at the same time, fully divine, fully human, sat down. It was the sixth hour of the day. Normally, as I said, Jesus didn't travel through, or a Jew wouldn't travel through Samaria. 
His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. A Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Jews, Jewish men weren't, especially a rabbi, weren't supposed to talk to women, period. Much less a Samaritan woman. And do you know why she came at noon? Because she was even an outcast among the Samaritans. Because the women of the community would come to draw water together in the morning and in the evening. But she came at noon by herself. There's a ton, a boatload of shame here. And so Jesus says, um, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. It's a fair reply. Jesus, uh, and, and Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you this living water. The woman was surprised. Sir, she said, you don't have anything to draw water with. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well himself and did also his sons, his flocks, and his herds? Of course, Jesus was greater than Jacob. She simply could not realize at this time, of the com- this point of the conversation, how much greater he was. So he answers, wow, this is getting baffling to her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. Whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She thinks to herself, okay, I'll go along with this guy. Let's see where this goes. The woman says to him, all right, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. Then, Jesus shocks her. Just shocks her. Because Jesus deals lovingly with truth. And Jesus knows that For us to heal, for us to find forgiveness, for us to be free, that we have to face the truth. Jesus, in his love and grace, calls us and tells us the way to leave shame is not to keep it buried and stuffed and try to pretend it's hidden and the stuff never happened. Are you with me? Okay. Hello? Still awake. That's good. Okay. You know, when I can't sleep at night, I turn on my sermons. All right. Works good. Go call your husband. Ooh. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right. When you have no husband, you say you don't. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true, dear. Now, you, now we get the full picture. You see, you see again why she came in the heat of the day and not in the morning. 
she was, not only was she a woman, Jesus wasn't supposed to be talking to her. She was a Samaritan woman. She was a five-time loser at marriage. And now she's living with a man who's not her husband. Wow. We don't know really why she was married five times. I suppose there could be a whole host of reasons. But there she stands messed up, right? Messed up, just like me. Maybe just like you. Fully exposed. Adam and Eve, it says they were naked and ashamed. And that nakedness doesn't refer to their physical nakedness. It refers to the exposure of their brokenness and their sin before God. And they tried to cover themselves. So here she is. She's exposed before the Christ. There's no place to hide. Sir, she doesn't know what to say. What would you say? I perceive you're a prophet. Brilliant deduction, Sherlock. Now she's thinking to herself, well, here it comes, the taunts, the, the put-downs, the what kind of messed up person have you made of your life lecture. She'd heard it many times before what people thought of her. Jesus is, Jesus is there, okay? Then ensues a conversation about worshiping God and uh, the hour's coming, and now is, he says, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who am speaking to you is her. She leaves her water jar, and I think she's jumping for joy. Uh, there must have been more to this conversation. Uh, the woman went back to the town, and she told the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Wow. And many Samaritans believed in him because of her witness. Now, I have an observation here. I, as I look at the ministry of Jesus, I don't know of any place in the four Gospels where Jesus is angry with a sinner. Find one for me. Jesus, when Jesus is upset in the scriptures, he's upset with self-righteous people. He's upset with the pretenders. He's upset with people that don't think they need grace. And so the good news for us today is we don't need to run from Jesus. As we don't need to pretend that we're something that we're not with all of our stuff. With all of our stuff. Jesus, this is, this is, this is who I am. Jesus, I, I just, Jesus, I have to be honest about you. 
with you, Lord. Jesus called this woman, it's very interesting, he, he, he uses the Greek word um, gune, which is a term of endearment. It's the same word he used when he was dying on the cross to address his mother, gune, dear one, dear one. Think of this, the village outcast. She can't associate with other women. She's been divorced several times, now is living with a man who is not her husband, yet Jesus, seeing the possibilities of her life because he, she's at her, I guess, her bottom, her, her point of desperation, and, 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 and he calls her special lady. What a powerful, powerful Savior. He treated her as a person that really mattered. He treated her as a person that really mattered. Friends, I want you to know this morning that you have not out-sinned. God has not, you have not out-sinned God's ability to meet you at your greatest point of need. The lover of your soul can satisfy your greatest need. You are loved deeply. A while back, I was uh, watching a program on, um, I don't even know what channel it was on, it's about the Holocaust. And they had a series of shows where they were, they were interviewing Holocaust survivors. And there was one elderly woman who was now single. Her husband had died, a Jewish lady. And um, she was a 13 maybe or so when... Uh, she lived in Poland, and when the Nazis came in and they took children away from their parents, and her father had enough wisdom. It was in the summer that they came for her, but her father made her wear winter boots. He sensed what was coming. And so she was one of the few of her friends that survived that had all the digits on her feet left. Because her father was wise enough to tell her to take her boots. And she talked about um, how she met her husband. And the day they were liberated by American soldiers, she married the first soldier from America that she met when their camp was liberated. <laughs> Why'd you do that? She was asked. She said, after years in the concentration camp of being degraded and abused by men, he was the first man in years that treated me with dignity and respect. He was the first man in years that treated me with dignity and respect. And it was shocking to me. Jesus Christ meets us at our deepest point of need. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find our rest in thee. God put a longing for eternity in our hearts, friends. And... Um, Fellow Christians, let's not get sidetracked 
in the game of life. If you're here searching today, God in Christ has a great love for you. I hope you heard that this morning. Let's pray today. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, Jesus, our Savior, um, God incarnate, and the love he has for us. It's so apparent. We give thanks. Thank you for being the foundation, the fountain of life for our lives. Lord, we respond to that love. We give you our lives today in hope and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.